Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all earth, all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to him, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I will give you, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word tonight. Scripture begins with such powerful words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, it was empty, there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and God began to create. On the first day, he created light. On the second day, he created sky. On the third day, he created dry land, and on the fourth, the lights of the sky. On day five, sea creatures and birds. On day six, living creatures, wild and domesticated. And finally, as we heard in our reading, God created humanity, created humanity in his own image and likeness. And one of the things that should stick out to us or stand out to us in chapter one is that God looked at each day's work and declared that the work that he had done was good. When we use the word good, we think in terms of things being wholesome or right. And the word good here can mean those, but it also means appropriate or fitting or that it came out the way God intended it to, that it worked as God intended it to. And then he looked at each day's work, at the whole of creation, 
and he declared that all of his creation was very good. He looked at the whole of it, and he saw that everything worked together the way he intended it to. So every act of creation begins in the mind of God, and it is accomplished when God speaks and his word makes it so. When we read or hear this account of creation in Genesis 1, what words come to mind about what God does? No doubt our words are inadequate and too small, too limited. But I think we might speak, as we did in the words of the last song, of the awesomeness of God, how creation demonstrates his awesome power. And we might speak of how great his power is, or we might look at creation and see the great wisdom of God. Mighty and majestic and beyond comprehension and beyond our ability to describe are all ways in which we can speak of God as a creator and his work of creation. And having said all of that, we can conclude that God is surely worthy of praise and worship from us, his children, who he has created twice. He's created us in giving us life, created us again in giving us new life in Christ Jesus. And there should be a place for such words and devotion. We should be reminded from time to time of how, God, how great God is and how small we really are. And from that should come an attitude of heart that keeps us from treating God in a, in a careless or flippant or irreverent way, a lazy way. It should encourage us to humble ourselves before him. And yet having said all of that, there's also a place to say that this is only one way for us to think about God and to think about his work of creation and our relationship with him. If you will, the other side to the truth that God is above us and greater than us, and his creation shows that, is to say that there is the side of truth that speaks to us of his love and of his grace for us, of his provision for us, of his providence for us, of his nearness and of his concern for us. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God is not willing that any should perish. Well, Genesis continues from this mighty creation hymn of chapter 1 with a look at the other side in chapter 2. From the side that looks at creation and sees evidence of God's grace and love, that sees his provision and his tender care for us and his willingness for us to choose the kind of relationship that we will have with him. And so tonight I want us to look at the other side, the other account of creation in Genesis 2, and to see the portrait of God that is painted there, and for us to weigh the challenge that it sets out for us. I want us to see God's love and grace at work for us in creation, and then to deeply think about what God wants from us in response. So please have your Bibles open to Genesis 2, and we're going to be going through verses 4 through 25, and I invite you to, to follow along in your scriptures. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The second account of creation begins with those words, 
And here we want to look at verses 4 through 7. What did God start with when he started his work of creation? What did it look like? What was it like? Well, according to this account in Genesis 2, at the beginning, creation, the creation of the earth, earth is a barren place. It's a lifeless place. There are no shrubs of the field. There are no plants, no grass, no flowers. There's no wild growth. There's no cultivated growth. I think we can say from verse 5 that earth is a lifeless desert, that it's empty. And it is that way for two reasons. First, it is that way because God had not sent rain on the land. He had not given water to the earth. And so we should picture not just an empty place, but a dry place, a brown place that gives no evidence of life. Perhaps we should think of pictures of the Southwest, places that are dry and, and lifeless. But the second reason that it is this way, Genesis tells us, is that there were no people to work the land. There is no human society to plant, and to harvest. But then creation begins. And here in Genesis 2, the account of creation is very, very different from the description of creation in chapter 1. There's a different set of concerns. Water, necessary for life, wells up from under the earth. Perhaps like a spring or an underground river that has come to the surface. It comes to the surface and as a result, the dry brown earth is watered and with its watering is made fertile. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. Verse 7. A potter gathers a lump of clay and works it with her hands and gives it the shape that she wants. God takes the dust of the earth and shapes it as he wants. And at that point, when he has shaped it to the form that he wants, it is nothing but a lifeless pile of dust, a clump of clay, and no more. But then God does for that dust what he does not do for anything else in all of his creation. And the Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. A child is swimming and begins to drown. She's pulled out of the water unconscious. Her rescuer gives her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And in a moment, she awakes, breathing on her own again. Is that what God did for human beings? Did God simply breathe air into the lungs of the creature that he had formed? No, that's not what we're being told here. What we're being told is not that God simply put air into our lungs, but that he gave the human being that he has shaped life. That he has shared his very life force with the creature that he had made. And it is with the very life of God that human beings became living creatures. As we look at that, can we see God's grace in it? I hope that we can. Creation is on hold until there are human beings to plant and to harvest. 
And God crafts human beings with his own hand. And what he has crafted, he bestows the gift of life. And all that tells us about God's attitude about humanity. It tells us that God is keenly interested in humanity. It tells us that God is involved in humanity and that God is working for humanity. Yes, God is awesome and God is mighty and our worship should declare that to be certain. But that awesome, mighty God cares for us for we are the work of his hands. And I think where that leads us is to borrow some words from the Apostle Peter who asks in 2 Peter chapter 3, in light of all that, what kind of people should we be? Now there he's talking about the second coming, but I think we can ask the same thing here. In light of our creation, in light of receiving the very life of God at the beginning, what kind of people should we be? How should we live before our Creator, who has made us and given us the breath of life? What kind of relationship should we seek with him? Should we desire with the one who created us in our world? Well, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed, verses 8 to 17. God's work is not done. His plan is still unfolding. And here we're told that he plants a garden And though it's hard to see in English, in verse 9, the emphasis is on the idea that God did work here. That God worked to plant the trees of the garden. I don't know how you visualize God planting a tree, but that's the image that we find here. He prepared a place, not for himself, but for the human being that he had formed. And notice that. Human beings do not go out and find their own place to live. It is provided for them by their creator. And again, that is evidence of his gracious care. The garden is to be found in the east, in a place called Eden. Sometimes the garden itself is referred to as Eden, but here the place or the region where the garden is to be found is also called Eden. In planting the garden, God made all the trees to grow out of the ground. At Hidden Lake Gardens in southeast Michigan, there is an oak forest on the far north side of the grounds. There is an arboretum that is full of every kind of maple that you can imagine. There's another arboretum that is full of dwarf evergreens of every shape and color that you can imagine. There is an arboretum that is full of flowering fruit trees. And in the spring, it looks like the clouds have descended to the earth. Clouds and pinks and whites. All those various arboretums are carefully planted and tended. Well, we're being described something like that, only in far greater terms. God's garden is a place of trees. And some of the trees that God planted there were planted just because they're beautiful. Not because they provide food, but because of their beauty. They're lovely to look at, lovely to sit in their shade. But some he planted were full of good fruit and nuts. There was good food in abundance. And in the middle of the garden, 
there are two very special trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, as the name suggests, gives life to those who eat its fruit. As the tree of life is mentioned in Scripture, it's not just life that it gives, but abundant life. The tree of life also symbolizes not just the abundant life, but the abundant life as God gives it. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is also found in God's garden. And just as eating from the tree of life conforms, confers immortal life, so eating of the tree of knowledge confers knowledge of good and evil. The garden of God is provided with water, with ample water. Look at verses 10 to 14. A river watering the garden flows from the Eden, and there it divides. It becomes four head streams. So much water flows in the garden that it fed four of the great rivers of the world. And remember where this story, this account is first being given. It's being given in the Middle East. This is an Eastern tale. It is a tale, that, an account that comes from a dry place where water is a scarcity. But there's so much here that the great rivers of the world are fed by it. Water and water in abundance means life itself. And so God plants a garden, a home for man that he created. It is a place of beauty. It is a place of abundant food. It is a place of abundant water, all of which underscores that the life that God created and gives to man is a rich life. The God who spoke the universe into existence is the same God who is now interested in meeting all of mankind's needs, in providing all that man needs for an abundant life in fellowship with him. So once again, we see God's gracious hand. We see his loving provision for the creature that he has made. So when the garden is complete, God places man in the garden. And in placing man in the garden, God gives him responsibility. He gives him a purpose for his life. And the purpose of his life is to work the garden and to care for it. Verse 15. To work it is to some end cultivate it. It is to till the soil. And to care for it means more literally to guard it and to protect it. So God gives man his life and he provides for that life and he gives purpose and he gives value to that life. And again, those are expressions of God's kindly favor. Finally, God gives his single law. For the garden, his one instruction for life in the Garden of Eden, verse 16. The garden is full of trees with good things to eat, and man may eat of any of them that he wants, including the tree of life, evidently, because that's not prohibited in this chapter. But God tells him that he is not to eat of the tree of knowledge, because on the day that he does, that is the day when man will die. And so we read in verse 16 and 17, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now in reading those two verses, we might be tempted to think that God is being harsh. 
to think that God is being difficult here. But I think if we look at it this way, we are overlooking what may be the greatest expression of his grace in this passage. He gives his creature the free choice of life and death, of life with him or life without him. You see, there are no electric fences around the tree of knowledge. There are no guards. There are no angels watching it. There are no barriers. There is no other security. God says this is the tree of knowledge and you're not to eat it. But then he leaves it up to man to decide what he's going to do, whether he wants life or death. Man can choose to continue in his relationship with God. He can choose to continue to live as God's creature, cared for and provided for. Or he can reject God. And suffer the consequences, which are death. He can trust and obey God, or he can choose to die. In that sense, all of us stand before the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because every day we make the choice of living by obedient faith, dependent on God, or of living without God, independent of Him and disobedience. And just as it did for Adam in the garden, one choice leads to life and the other choice to death. God doesn't impose himself on Adam. He gives Adam the choice. He lets Adam decide what relationship they will have. And then in verses 18 through 25, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. As soon as we read verse 18, we hear echoes of Genesis 1. God declared that his work of creation was good, and all of creation was very good. Again, it all functions as he intended to in every detail. But now, for the very first time in creation, God declares that something is not good. And what is not good is that man is alone. There is no one who can share his existence. There's no one who can share his life. Yes, there are food, there's food and water to sustain it, and, and yes, there are animals that can help, that can be company, but there is nothing like man. There's nothing for man to share life with. And so God determines to correct that. He determines to make a helper, a companion, Somebody suitable to share the life of the man that he's created. Notice that he doesn't create a slave. He doesn't create someone who is subservient and of no worth. He makes a special act of creation of someone to share Adam's life. And so he begins with this special act of creation by showing Adam that he's alone. The beast of the field, the birds of the air... God created all of them out of the ground. Then God brought them before Adam and invited Adam to give them names. And whatever Adam called them, that's what their name became, verse 19. And so picture Adam. He sees this great, great parade of animals and birds that God has made. And they come by him one by one, and and he gives them their name. But when the last animal has gone by, 
Adam stands there all alone. There has not been one preacher in this parade who could truly share his life. And he knows that he is alone. He knows that he's alone. And so the Lord God causes him to fall into a deep sleep. Man is not allowed to see God create, verse 21, to see the Creator at work. And once he is asleep, God removes one of man's ribs and closes up the place with flesh. And once again, the craftsman goes to work. And he fashions or crafts a woman from man's rib. And when the work is done, the Lord God brings her to him. And as soon as he sees her, Adam recognizes that here is someone who is just like me. That's the import of these words in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He sees her and he recognizes what she is and he shares his name with her. Not as a sign of his authority over her, but of the fact that they are alike. That they are made to share life with each other. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And every husband and wife since shares Adam and Eve's experience. Because when we become husband and wife, we share in the life that God creates for us anew because he makes us one flesh. Just as he made them one flesh. Genesis 1 paints such an awesome picture of God. But Genesis 1 is not so much about creation as it is about the creator. Genesis 1 is making a truly revolutionary statement about God. It is saying that God is outside of creation, that God is above creation, that he is not within creation, and that he is not subject to creation. And in all of the cultures of the ancient Near East, Israel alone believes that about God. In all of the other cultures, no matter where you look in the ancient world, their gods were just another part of creation. And they were subject to all of the changes of creation. But the God of Israel, the God who made the heavens and the earth, isn't part of creation. He is above it. He is master of it. Creation is subject to him not him to creation. The great evil that comes from evolution is not simply the claim that man came from monkeys. The great evil of evolution is that it says there is no God. That's the import of that philosophy. It says that God is the creation of man, that he's simply something that man has created in his mind and denies that God is the creator. That is the evil of it. That is what we need to be opposed to. When we read Genesis 1, we should be moved to praise and to worship. Our God is indeed an awesome God. But we mustn't speed past Genesis 2 and its account of creation because it teaches us some things about this awesome God. And what we learn about him is that he is not off somewhere far, far away and disinterested, which is part of the philosophy of our founding fathers, by the way. 
But he's interested and he's committed. And he's involved in the care of his creature man. He gives the world the capacity to support life for the benefit of men and women. He makes humankind and gives his own life, his own breath of life. He provides a beautiful home where all of man's needs can be met lavishly. He gives man a purpose for his life. And in a special act of creation, he gives him a companion to share that life. And with all that, God invites man and woman to determine whether or not they will continue in a relationship with him. They can choose life. They can choose to live within the boundaries of his will, caring for the garden, eating from the trees, including the tree of life, and the riches of grace that would sustain them in his fellowship. But they can also reject all of that and assert themselves and choose their own way. They can eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. At the center of the garden stands the choice between life and death. And all of that is God's grace. God does not impose his will. God does not make man do what he wants him to do, but gives him the choice. So God is at once so far above us, but at the same time so close and in such intimate fellowship with us. Of course, we know how that all turned out, don't we? Because chapter 3 follows chapter 2. Adam and Eve enjoyed their life in the garden. They enjoyed fellowship with God. I think in one of the most beautiful and evocative pictures in Scripture, we're told that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. That's the kind of fellowship that they had. But the day came with the help of the serpent. serpent. They decided to give up that life as God's creatures, and they disobey him. And they lose everything. They lose everything. The garden, its provisions, their fellowship with God. They lost the life that they had with God. And as you keep reading in Genesis down through chapter 11, what you need to see is that with each new chapter, with each new account, human beings get further and further and further and further away from God until man is quite happy to live as if there is no God. That is the horror of the Tower of Babel, that mankind has come to the place where it can live as if there is no God. But that's not the end of the story. God wasn't done, and God wasn't giving up. Somebody has called the Bible, and I guess this is one of my favorite ways to think about it, the story of God getting back what is his. He calls a man named Abram, and he promises that the whole world will be blessed through him, and that blessing will come in the form of a new Adam, one named Jesus, who gives his life in perfect obedience the first Adam could not attain. And it is striking and it is wondrous that one of the ways in which God's getting back his own is described is this. That if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. A new creation. 
a brand new creation. And as a new creation, we stand just like Adam and Eve at the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of evil and good. And day by day, we face the choice to live God's way, to live within the boundaries of his will, which he has set for us, in humility and trust and dependence on him for everything, including life itself. Or, as Adam and Eve did, to assert ourselves against him in the belief that we know what is best and that we can do it our way, that we can secure ourselves and that we don't need God. Those are our choices. The consequences of those choices, though, have not changed, and they will not change. The consequences are life or death. What choice are you making? Are you choosing life or are you choosing death? The tree of life or the tree of knowledge? And as God says throughout his word from beginning to end, choose life. Choose life with your creator and with your redeemer. Live with him and enjoy fellowship with him. For that is the only true life that there is. As we go about our week, may we enjoy that fellowship. May we walk with him, not just in the cool of the day, but in every moment of the day. Let's stand and sing our song of invitation. If you're in need of prayer or needing to do God's will, won't you come while we sing together?